It's lunchtime at Tim Hortons, and we're serving up a special deal just for you. Our new $5.99 lunch deal includes your choice of any lunch sandwich and a side of crunchy kettle chips. Because what's lunch without a little crunch? And the sandwich choice is all yours. Like a ham and Swiss, Chipotle chicken wrap, BLT, and more. Made to order just the way you like it. Tim Hortons' new lunch deal. Simple, delicious, and just $5.99. Now that's a good deal. Only at your neighborhood Tim's. U.S. only. Price and participation vary. Terms apply. She pressed her ear up against the door and knocked three times. Suddenly, she jumped away and screamed. Something just knocked back. I'm Tom Stewart, and this is my paranormal story. Before I start this episode, I want to thank you for listening. And if you really like my stories and would like to show your support, you can buy me a coffee. Just go to the website, buymeacoffee.com slash myparanormal, and you can literally buy me a coffee. And hopefully, the caffeine will help me with making more episodes real soon. Thanks again for your support. When I first thought about becoming a paranormal investigator back in the early 2000s, I expected I'd be investigating hauntings in many different people's homes, businesses, and even some historic locations. Along with ghosts, I thought there might even be a few cases where I'd get to investigate UFOs, aliens, maybe even a Bigfoot or two. But it never entered into my mind that perhaps one day, I'd be investigating a vampire. You hear about many urban legends growing up in Rhode Island. The state is full of history and lore. And one of the more famous stories is that of a vampire named Mercy Brown. Mercy was the 19-year-old daughter of George Brown, a farmer living with his family in Exeter, Rhode Island. The year is 1883, and the Brown family has just suffered the first of several tragedies. George's wife, Mary, succumbs to a mysterious and wicked illness. For months, she suffers in bed, barely able to breathe, hardly eating, with fits of heavy coughing that sometimes result in blood. But the family barely has time to mourn her loss before their daughter, Mary Olive, contracts the same illness as her mother and also passes away. Several years later, George's only son, Edwin, and his other daughter, Mercy, both become gravely ill as well. After a year of struggling with the sickness, Mercy passes away in the winter of 1892. Word of the family's deaths begin to concern the people of the town. And with Edwin still suffering, George becomes distraught. Doctors are unable to determine what's inflicting this family. 
friends and family begin to believe that what is happening is more than just a sickness. Perhaps it's something supernatural. Many of the townsfolk start to believe that maybe one of the members of the Brown family is a vampire, an undead soul sucking the life out of each family member. In March of 1892, after some pressure from the town, George gave them permission to dig up the graves of his lost loved ones in order to inspect the bodies for any signs of vampirism. George, along with a couple of townspeople and a reporter, dig up the graves of his wife and his oldest daughter, Mary Olive, only to find their decomposed bones and remains. But Mercy died in the winter when the ground was frozen so her body was kept in a stone crypt until the ground was soft enough for burial. After being buried for only a short time, when they exhumed her coffin, they found her body to still be in fair condition. Her face and skin were still flush. Her hair and fingernails had kept growing, and there was blood in her veins and heart. A local doctor tried to tell them that this was normal, that her body had not had time to decompose yet because it was kept in that crypt. But the townsfolk had another theory in mind. They determined that Mercy Brown was a vampire. And the only way to rid the Brown family of this undead danger was to remove her heart and burn it. With doctors unable to treat his son, George found himself desperate enough to try anything. So at the advice of some of the townsfolk, he mixed the ashes from Mercy's burned heart with water and forced his son to drink it. Unfortunately, the tonic did not turn out to be the remedy he hoped for. Two months later, Edwin passed away from the sickness. Sadly, this isn't the only time this has happened. This mysterious illness had been affecting families and towns for years throughout the New England area. And quite often, townspeople would exhume bodies looking for vampires. It wasn't even the first time it happened in the town of Exeter. Back in 1799, the body of a young Sarah Tillinghast was exhumed after she and several of her brothers and sisters died from the mysterious sickness and her heart was also burned. The illness the Brown family and many others suffered from was later determined to be consumption, better known today as tuberculosis. But doctors back then had no knowledge of how to treat or diagnose this disease. And quite often, just like in the town of Exeter, people would consider the sickness to be something supernatural. The idea that Mercy Brown was a vampire never went away, as the illness made its way through the town of Exeter, affecting more and more families. Everyone was convinced it was a result of them burning Mercy's heart. They reburied her body, hoping it would bring them peace. And while she may never have truly been a vampire, many say her spirit still haunts the graveyard in which she's buried, which makes her place of rest a place of interest for many in the paranormal field. 
Some years ago, I was invited to investigate Mercy Brown's gravesite with a couple of friends of mine, Michael and Nancy, a married couple that I first met while investigating Belcourt Castle in Newport, Rhode Island. I was hosting public investigations with Rise Up Paranormal one summer, and Michael and Nancy were among the many paranormal enthusiasts who joined us. We stayed in touch and became friends. They would show up at many of our public investigations and events. They decided to form their own paranormal investigation team with a couple of their friends and would often come to me for advice or suggestions. And one late fall afternoon, they were heading out to investigate Mercy Brown's gravesite and asked me if I wanted to tag along. Believe it or not, even with all of my interest in the paranormal and growing up in Rhode Island, I had never actually been to Mercy Brown's grave. So I decided, why not now? So I grabbed my case of tools and gadgets and headed down to Exeter with them. Mercy Brown's final resting place is located in Chestnut Hill Cemetery behind an old Baptist church. It's a small graveyard with a dirt road that goes down the middle. And about halfway down or so on the left is the Brown family plot, right next to an old evergreen tree. It's not hard to find Mercy's grave as it's often surrounded by flowers, candles, and other trinkets. It's also held down with a metal bar so that no one can steal her gravestone. But not all people who visit her grave have poor intentions. Most people are probably just curious. They want to see the urban legend for themselves. Others come to pray and give blessings to Mercy's soul. And others visit in the hopes of possibly seeing her ghost. And I suppose we were there for all three. There are many stories of people who have claimed to see the ghostly apparition of a young woman walking around the graveyard at night. Some claim if you stand too close to Mercy's grave, you'll feel someone pushing you. And there are also claims of people hearing a woman's voice and sometimes the sound of someone whistling nearby, all believed to be from the restless spirit of Mercy Brown. There are also claims of a patch of dirt near Mercy's grave that just won't grow any grass like the land around it. And this is supposedly the spot where they burned her heart. And the tomb? that is believed to have stored her body during those cold winter months is across the way in plain sight. Now I've investigated my fair share of cemeteries over the years, but I've never been a big fan of it. It's very difficult, if not impossible, to control the environment when you're outside. There are many factors like weather, people, animals, creepy crawlies, all kinds of things that can contaminate your evidence. Plus there's the scare factor. We've all grown up watching movies that give us the idea that graveyards are spooky. And it's my belief that spirits don't hang out in graveyards. To me it makes more sense for spirits to be attached to things that they knew when they were alive, like people, places, and things. It doesn't make much sense to me for a spirit to want to hang around in an empty cemetery where they're buried. But when that spirit 
has been disturbed by being dug up and having its heart burned into ashes? Well, I suppose that might be an exception to my rule. Mercy's grave is a modest-looking stone. It had several types of flowers placed on it from past visitors, and lots of other little gifts, including a bunch of pennies and quarters on top. In most cases, coins on gravestones are meant as a token of love to the family, to let them know that someone had visited their loved one's grave. But I often wonder if the coins at grave sites are being used in some sort of experiment or spiritual enchantment. As I walked around the general area around her grave, I spotted a round patch of dirt. It was probably about 12 to 15 inches in diameter, and sure enough, it was surrounded by similar dirt with grass growing on it. I inspected it a little closer, but honestly, I couldn't say if this was a natural occurrence or if it had been caused by the burning of Mercy's heart, but it was definitely there. We walked around her grave respectfully, looking for anything of interest. Then Michael decided he wanted to try standing close to her stone and see if anyone pushes him. At first we were all kind of laughing about the idea, but as he slowly stepped towards the grave, I could tell he was getting a little nervous. I mean, he's a grown man, 5'10", maybe 175 pounds. It would take quite a shove to push him over. He slowly took small steps closer and closer to her headstone, waiting to see what would happen. He got close enough that the toes of his sneakers were almost touching the base of her gravestone, and he stood there for a moment, waiting. But nothing happened. It was beginning to be dusk now, so before it got too dark, I wanted to head over to the tomb where some say Mercy's body was stored during the winter months. There's no way of knowing if this was the tomb, but it's the only likely place anywhere within sight. It's a small triangle-shaped stone structure at the edge of the cemetery, underneath some trees, and it has an old wooden door with metal braces and a padlock on it. There were also some fresh flowers laid out in front of it. You could definitely tell it was old, but I didn't see any names or markers anywhere. We tried peering in through the cracks, but it was too dark to see anything. So I decided to try knocking on the door to see if I'd get a response. So I knocked three times. I could hear the emptiness of the tomb behind the door, but there was no response. So I tried again. This time I said, hello, and knocked again. No response. So I began to walk away thinking we'd head back to Mercy's grave, but then Nancy decided she wanted to give it a try. She walked up to the door and put her ear up against the wood and she knocked. Suddenly she jumped back with a scream. Oh my God, she yelled. Something just knocked back. 
I could tell by the look on her face she wasn't kidding. So we decided to hang around the tomb a little bit longer, and we each took turns knocking and listening, trying to get a response, but no luck. It was starting to get darker now, so with our flashlights out, we went back to Mercy's grave. With all the trees and branches and gravestones, it's really easy to trick yourself into thinking you're seeing something. Every time I turned my head, I thought I was seeing shadows darting around us. I was also getting this weird feeling like we were being watched. Nancy took out her audio recorder and we all tried doing an EVP session, you know, hoping to catch Mercy's voice on tape. EVP stands for Electronic Voice Phenomena. It's a technique used by paranormal investigators to hopefully catch a response to a question that is digitally imprinted onto the audio recorder. So we all took turns asking questions. Is that you people keep seeing in the graveyard, Mercy? Are you upset that they dug up your grave? Do you miss your family? We tried asking different questions, hoping to get some sort of a reaction. But outside of the weird feelings we were getting, we didn't really experience anything to speak of. But the next day, Nancy reviewed the audio she recorded from our EVP session. Unfortunately, she didn't hear any voices. But she sent me the audio file so I could listen to it and analyze it for anything paranormal. And I listened to the whole thing and I didn't hear any voices either. But I did hear one thing that I thought was pretty interesting. Take a listen. My Paranormal Story is written, produced, and narrated by me, Tom Stewart. Music from this episode, courtesy of Kevin McLeod at Incompetech.com. If you enjoy my stories and would like to support the podcast, you can go to buymeacoffee.com slash myparanormal, or just click on the donate button on my website at myparanormalstory.com. I also have t-shirts and coffee mugs for sale. Unfortunately, Podcasts cost money, and your support helps me keep this podcast running. So thank you for your support. Please don't forget to subscribe so you'll know when I've added new episodes. And feel free to follow me on Facebook and Instagram. Just search for My Paranormal Story. If you have a podcast and you'd like to have me as a guest, or if you'd like to ask me a question or tell me your paranormal story, you can email me at myparanormalstorypodcast at gmail.com. Thanks for listening. I'm Tom Stewart, and this is My Paranormal Story.